Welcome to a very special holiday bonus episode of Streamageddon, a little stocking stuffer for your feed. I'm your host, Chris Barlow, and I am joined by Santa's little helper, Diane Nora. How you doing, Diane? I'm doing very well, thanks. How are you? Happy uh, holidays. Happy holidays. How was your Christmas? It was good. It was really good. I um, ate way too much and watched a lot of TV. Uh, I had both latkes and eggnog, basically the American dream. That's perfect. That's perfect. Hanukkah just wrapped up as well. I, I had an ex- How about you? I, thank you. I, I had an excellent holiday until I accidentally killed Santa Claus. And now I regret to inform you I've contractually become Santa Claus and will have to move to the North Pole with David Krumholtz. I was about to say, oh no, does that mean I have I get to be the hot elf? But no, Krumholtz no, I'm, is I'm, in. I'm so sorry, Krumholtz is in. Uh, are we registered at William Sonoma? Congrats. Thank you so much. Thank you. But we're here uh, today in your feed to talk about this holiday's biggest streaming event, Glass Onion, a colon, a Knives Out mystery. We just last week put out an episode talking about uh, the release strategy here. Netflix put it in theaters first. Diane and I, living in the big city, had an opportunity to see it in movie theaters in uh, November. And so we did a little review. If you have not listened to that episode yet and you're curious to hear a spoiler light take on Glass Onion. In fact, almost a spoiler-free take. I would I'm, say spoiler-free. I'm really proud of ourselves. We committed to avoiding spoilers in that review, and we achieved the dream. So if you have not seen Glass Onion yet, and you uh, would like to hear a bit about it, but not spoil any of the big twists, go one episode back in your podcast feed. We did do that episode already, and it's there for you. And this has been your opportunity to hit pause on this episode if you're in a panicked, sweaty moment of, no, 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 the mystery, the twist. The spoilers! Uh, because we are going to spoil everything. In this episode, this is our special holiday spoiler cast for Glass Onion. Uh, we already shared our overall impressions of the movie. And, and uh, you know, where we ended the last episode, I thought, is a great place to start. Because... Diane made some really great uh, points about the fact that it is very formulaic, and Glass Onion has leaned into the fact that Knives Out is a, a franchise and a formula now. And I'm encouraged by that in some ways, because I like a, I like a franchise that knows what it is. Uh, but at the same time, there's a real risk that it'll become repetitive. And so I'm, uh, and as I pointed out, to give myself some credit, some risk that it could jump the shark. And that's where I wanted to start the spoiler cast, because there is an element to this movie I just feel like I have to address out the gate. And that is the Mona Lisa. They burned Mm. up the Mona Lisa in this movie. And there is something about that that was both thematically really satisfying and to a point that uh, you, Diane, made in the last episode— felt like this weird moment of kind of toothless uh, satire that they were trying they were trying to make it seem like they were saying something and at the same time they weren't really saying anything it was all in service of this uh, kind of satisfying to to be honest joke that uh, Ed, Ed Norton's character had always wanted to be remembered in the same breath as the Mona Lisa and by burning it down and destroying it he will be and there there was some narrative satisfaction to that but I I there was something that struck me as really odd about literally in-universe saying, we've destroyed the Mona Lisa. It was also very odd. Um, and I, I, I don't really see any satirical value to it. I thought it was a bit confusing because there are um, current protests happening 
about great works of art that people have uh, debated, and we don't need to get into the merit of those protests now, but by, um, you know, climate activists uh, about where they've been like damaging great works of art. And so this felt like almost akin to that, but not. So it felt like it was referencing something in the culture, but also trying to make you not think of that thing. What? That was weird. I didn't I, no. Right, and no. actually- yeah, I, the, I, the burning of the Mona Lisa, no. That gets me to another thing that I thought was, you know, and this is not really a critique of Ryan Johnson, but more a critique of the kind of choice to uh, involve something so topical but general at the same time. And that's the, the fact that the villain was essentially an Elon Musk-like. And, and I found that delicious in a way. Uh, Edward Norton plays this billionaire who created a company called Alpha, which honestly, like, I'm surprised Elon didn't name one of his companies Alpha. Uh, and so in a way, it, there's something really topical about that. And in another way, it's completely coincidental that we are talking about Elon Musk nonstop right now. When he wrote and directed and shot this movie, Elon Musk was not in the process of dominating the November through December news cycle in America. That that timing is purely coincidental, but then causes you to have different expectations of the satire and the humor. I, I, I could not not think about Elon Musk throughout the reveal at the end that Ed Norton's billionaire is an idiot. And again, that was delicious and also, at the same time, kind of distracting. It was a little distracting, though for me, I found this to be the part of the satire that worked. I think this movie will have broad appeal, and it's a pretty simple takeaway. This guy, who's kind of like the other billionaires you hear in the news, sure, mostly Elon Musk right now, but also sure, Jeff Bezos, um, is, is not a mad genius. He's just a useful idiot. And that's how he became, uh, you know, wealthy to the point that he lost all of his ethics, if he ever had any. Right. There's also a Sam, there's a Sam Bankman Freed ankle thinking about people who lost everything. Like weirdly, yes, it is so topical because it applies to so many people. And, and I, I actually think you're, you're probably right that it's a strength of it that 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 you can feel like it's so true in so many different ways that that adds to the um both the humor i guess because it's it's uh it is the best the satire gets i guess in some ways yeah i think that for me that was the best that the satire gets which the main strength of this movie and the reason i was not i was watching it was not satire to be clear i really enjoy the mystery part of the movie and that for the most part was a success to me. I mean, I, I do also, you know, know that some people enjoy Ryan Johnson's form of satire. That part I could leave and just take hmm. the rest of the movie. Hmm. And, you know, there there are some choices in, in the movie where if I separate out um, what the, the maybe the satirical element is or the, the broader meaning of it is, and I just focus on mechanically how did it work as a sight gag or mechanically how did it work in the mystery that I, I, I then really enjoy it again. And, and for like the Mona Lisa, for example, while I found it weird that it was the Mona Lisa specifically, 
I, I loved that it was there to make a moment out of this moving um, uh, plexiglass, essentially, window that protects the Mona Lisa that goes up and down and is triggered by any noise in the room. And then ultimately in the climax is triggered by the fire. And then, as we learned earlier, there's an override button that, uh, you know, Janelle Monet uses to destroy the Mona Lisa. And, and that all was a satisfying mechanical build of information that I had. Had, that as she's running for it, I know, oh, yes, her. I knew what she was trying to do. And so it accentuated the excitement, the humor of that moment, even though the fact that it was the Mona Lisa was not my favorite part about that. It also kind of undercuts her character for me because she was the one who seemed to be able to think of the greater good beyond her personal wants and needs where no one else in the film really does that. Uh, she's the only one who is an ethical person. And so for her to be like, you know, screw this great work of art. Uh, let's win this petty vendetta against uh, this really rich guy. I, if, if, I don't know. I didn't love it. I didn't love yeah, it. Yeah, I and, and you know, I felt again this is why I bumped up against it being the Mona Lisa. And my actual takeaway at the end of the movie, once they kind of made a point of making a one-liner out of his desire to be remembered in the same breath as the Mona Lisa, w- it made me go, "Oh, in that moment, what she's doing is she's sealing his fate." Her goal is to destroy him, but it's a little too many degrees removed, let's say, that destroying the Mona Lisa destroys this billionaire was one too many steps removed for me to, like, in that moment, go, oh, your motivation, I would do the same thing. Because at that moment, like, would I burn down the Mona Lisa? Would I go, yes, burning down the Mona Lisa is the best way to get vengeance on this man who killed my sister? Maybe I would connect all those dots in the moment, but that is how it, it just felt like a bit of a stretch to that point i wouldn't have minded one beat past the final image the final image of the movie we have janelle monet smiling a kind of half mona lisa non-smile sort of smile and it's it's a nice visual i love janelle monet love to look at janelle monet at the same time knowing people who are that rich and powerful get away with everything if we could have had the cops come and take him away first uh you know it just like a little reassurance that he wasn't going to get out of this wasn't going to go and kill someone else you know i i would have i would have appreciated that yeah, I, I, I can see that. I feel like Ryan probably thinks that he gave us that in the scene where Catherine Hahn and Leslie Odom Jr. and Whiskey all say that they're going to vote. Essentially, they raise their hands to say, I'm going to sink this guy. That they, they chose a more um, in-universe, in let's say. Because ultimately, the, part of the, the formula of this is the cast is really small. You actually don't mm. meet a lot of ancillary people. You see police boats coming, but you don't see a single police officer. And so I think he wanted to make a choice that kept it within that tight group of people, but tried to reassure you that he's not going to get away with it. And that, to, to our discussion we had in the uh, initial review, is where that warm, fuzzy element comes in for me at the end, where they, they didn't need to make this scene where the other suspects all decide to finally make the right choice and lie for the truth. Because that is part of the the choice there is they're lying about some of those details, but they know that it's in service of the truth at this point. Um, And that scene is a little cliche, 
a little unnecessary and in some ways bumps against their characters and and who their their characters are in the rest of the movie but also that scene is there for my mother and my mother will love that scene and i think that that is in some ways the right choice for this movie to to do it like that it's not for me stylistically but i am happy to Take one for the team, and I'm so glad that your mom and my mom will have that to enjoy. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. not just my mom. It's um, moms everywhere. It's true. It's true. Well, not all moms, but many moms. Many moms. Many moms. Um, But, you know, I I, want to circle back to that final scene with Janelle Monae, because there is something about the ambiguity of that ending that made me think, oh, she's going to be in the next one. And I don't know, I have no reason to believe that beyond the way that they ended that together with Benoit Blanc basically saying, I am held accountable to other, you know, higher powers. I am held accountable to the law. I cannot commit arson, essentially. But you can. And and to have them end with that moment together where he has turned her into an expert detective and one who can be a bit of a renegade made me want, at least, Uh, the next movie to feature both of them in some way and also made me kind of feel like well that would be a way to shake up the formula a little bit next time is that he has a partner who can operate outside the law but also at the same time is a little green because part of the humor when we discover who Janelle Monae really is that she's really the sister is that she doesn't drink but then she gets drunk on the the boozy kombuchas that she you know hasn't done anything like this before but then she's really good at it and and the way that that unfolds makes her such a great character and so fun to watch that when they end with them together, I go, well, surely you, we want more of this. You know we want more of this dynamic, right? Yeah, I mean, I would take it if it were if it were available. Um, I think in some ways she was uh, better at solving the mystery than, he, than Benoit was um, mm-hmm. in the second half of the movie. The only thing that I'd say is I think they did sort of a similar setup with Ana de Armas in the first movie where we end with her um, and the family sort of uh, these like rich, powerful people uh, kind of clamoring for um, her acceptance now or forgiveness. So I think it could be that it's just continuing that formula, but I would love it if they shook it up and tried something new and brought her back because she's very good. And she had a great chemistry with Daniel Craig. She did. I, and I much preferred her second character, who she played. I thought back to, I was like, was that the kind of twist? Because that twist got me. A few of the twists I was on top of and I was proud of myself for. The second sister thing, I did not catch. And I was like, well, was it, a, was it the kind of twist where they showed us a clue and I missed it? And I was like, yes. They showed us a whole scene. Yes. It's one of the first scenes in the movie yes. where she's a different person. And I just didn't pick up on it. So it was entirely on me. <laughs> yeah, honestly, I'm glad you brought that up because my next question was going to be, which of the twists got you? And that is the number one twist that got me. And probably my favorite thing about the movie structurally, let's say, because I am I am a big storytelling structure fan. And, and when they picked that moment to double back and reveal that they had been showing us all of the right things all along, but we were missing just this one key piece of information that there's a twin. 
If we'd known there's a twin, we might have thought during many of these scenes, okay, but which one is this? And it's it was so right. it was so satisfying to be like this one piece of information completely changes how you viewed all of these scenes that you've already seen. Absolutely. I also had a moment after the film where I was wondering, okay, so if he killed Andy, why would he then invite her? I don't know if that makes sense that, you know, he had killed her and then he sends her an invitation. But then I realized, oh, well, if he sends her the invitation, that is proof that he didn't know she she was dead. And so he thought that she was still alive. And so he was expecting her to come. That is like, you know, covering his tracks. So yeah. I was like, OK, that does make sense. Yeah, there's there's the plausible deniability element kicks in. Uh, everything about the way that that doubled back was extremely satisfying. Uh, and in a way where in the moment I, w- I was worried, to be honest, because it begins to double back after Janelle Monet gets shot. And, and once they began to unfold the story that got there, uh, I thought, oh, no, Benoit Blanc killed someone. You know, and that's on purpose. Mm-hmm. That is exactly what Ryan Johnson wanted me to think on that 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 double back. And and I will say it's very convenient that the Notebook saved her. But also, this is a genre where that that convenience is f- acceptable to me. I'm like because what they did with it, having it turn into the hot sauce blood and the the final um, scene where she gets to steal the the note and then lead us to the climax. That all worked mechanically very well. That that the let's say incredulity I had around really we're doing the thing in my breast pocket stopped the bullet. But at the same time, Murder, She Wrote probably did that. Agatha Christie probably did that. There's something about that that's very timeless, and it's a trope, but that's why it works. Oh, yeah. No, I was fine with that, especially since it's something that is symbolic. Uh, You know, that sort of big gesture, I think, works in this genre. Um, Some of the other big choices in terms of the ensemble, I had a little trickier time with. I think that, like... Kate Hudson's character in particular, the writing for her was really broad. And I think she nailed the performance as much as she could. But like the whole thing about her, like dressing up like Beyonce and stuff, it just felt like real big cliches uh, that could have been funnier if they were like a little bit more original. Yeah. And I I wish I had a better sense of her dynamic with Peg, her assistant. Peg felt like probably one of the weakest characters in the entire movie. Um, in a way where I'm like, you either needed more peg or less peg, but the amount of peg we had was not the right amount of peg. (laughs) That was one of my only complaints about the first movie, was that you had this amazing ensemble of character actors whom I adore, and then I only got a little bit of each of them. I was like, I need a whole extra scene of Don Johnson and Tony Collette, or, you know, like, I I need more. Yeah. Um, So... This, I felt, at least for the ensemble, they had some juicier stuff to do, even if it was extremely broad. Yeah, I and it felt like a tighter ensemble. I, you know, uh, I'm not looking at the cast list side by side here, but there are fewer main characters in Glass Onion, and the story that connects them all is ultimately a little tighter than just, well, we're all related to the, the person, you know? Agreed, yeah. Okay, well then my next question for you, maybe the most important question of all, is which unexpected background celebrity cameo was your favorite unexpected background celebrity cameo? 
Oh, can it be a reference that they weren't actually there? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Okay, so Jeremy Renner's hot sauce. Yeah, that was good. Yeah, that was good. Because really I, I just feel like they called him and they were like, are you okay with that? Do you find that funny? Can we put your face on a label? And he said yes. Yeah, I hope they didn't ask Jared Leto. <laughs> no, fair, fair. Uh, my answer was going to be Serena Williams. Oh, that was so good. Oh, my God. That was one of the funniest parts of the movie. Yeah. And that she's reading um, Gravity's Rainbow. <laughs> yeah, those moments, some of those sight gags and celebrity sight gags in particular were were really, really satisfying and are part of what elevates this from fun mystery puzzle with, with fun star-studded mystery puzzle, no less, to kind of self-aware fun star-studded mystery puzzle, which adds a little bit of, I, I don't know, makes me less concerned, let's say, about some of the flaws or some of the uh, formulaic elements, because it's fun. That's the whole point. It knows it's a mystery. It knows it's it's a goofy celebrity-filled uh, party. That is partly why we're here. That That is, to me, part of what was amazing about Ocean's Eleven when I first saw the George Clooney Ocean's Eleven. And it is nailing that vibe in so many ways and doing something smart, which is to say, well, you're not going to want to go to the same party over and over again. So each movie is a new party. And you are essentially Benoit Blanc invited to this party. Yeah, that part of it I really like. Um, and I also will say... Um, the Zoom game that happened where we got to see Stephen Sondheim was healing to my soul, Angela Lansbury, and then and then the twist that uh, his partner is Hugh Grant. Grant. Uh, just all, all, all the love there for that. Beautiful. That is just a, a few highlights, let's say, of Glass Onion. And listener, if you've now seen Glass Onion and you have some questions, some thoughts, some feedback for us and our thoughts and feelings about Glass Onion, you should share them. Write to us, podcast at streamageddon.com. We're going to take a little break for the new year, and then we will be back to read your emails and share uh, all of our thoughts and feelings about what's going on in the world of streaming. Uh, but until then, Diane, this is it. This is the end of 2022 on Streamageddon. Are you prepared for what comes next? Whatever may come, I'm going to keep streaming. I'm so sorry. Grumholtz is in. Uh, are we registered at Williams-Sonoma. <laughs>